0: We've just started our new pr- uh, series uh, of talks on a Sunday morning, uh, called "Prayer Equals Life," and uh, I think that title really sums up. Uh, to address- is this a bit booming here? Is it Can I go down a little? It's probably just my authoritative, commanding tone. It's all right, no problem. I don't have a button for that. Just neutralize it. Anyway, no, don't do that, actually. Uh, that'd be helpful. Um, this title, Prayer Equals Life, really sums up, uh, I guess, why we want to spend uh, a number of weeks on this topic and look into this in detail. Because you see, the Bible doesn't pre- present prayer as this little thing on the edge of our life, a little isolated activity that we do. But prayer is actually something that should characterize us as people. It should be at the very. It says something about who we are in our very hearts. Let me put it simply, I suppose Christianity is, uh, revolves around the central idea that uh, we, re, we can be as human beings in relationship with our Creator, and as any of you guys uh, would know, if ever been in any sort of relationship, whether that 's family, uh, friends, partner, whatever, you will know that communication is not just a, a little thing on the edge of your relationship. Communication is the essence, really, of your whole relationship, and the same goes with communication with God. So this whole series, and this morning concluded, is not just going to be about uh, a few minutes that you might spend in the morning when you wake up, or just before you go to bed at the end of your day. No, this is about, really, what it means to be a Christian. And our method in this series is we're going to look at some of the famous prayers and and prayers in the Bible, uh, and learn from these guys and ladies. Ladies. And last week, Jonathan looked at Abraham, we start with Abraham and his prayer for the city of Sodom, and we're going to move on a few chapters today to look at Jacob uh, in what is a prayer, but is, as you'll see, is a fairly unconventional style of prayer. And we're going to look into it. It's in Genesis 32: 22 to 32. I'm going to read from the new international version the NIV, uh, and the words will come' up behind me, but please feel free to follow along as well. Genesis 32: 22 to 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So let's walk our way through this passage to work out what's going on and also how it relates to our theme as well. Now the first thing to do, I guess, is to introduce this guy Jacob. Now Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, who we heard about last week, if you were here last time. And Abraham was special because he'd received the promise from God that Abraham's offspring, his descendants, would uh, become a great nation, God had said to him, and actually would uh, be a blessing to all nations. That's what God had said to Abraham. Abraham and it had already become clear in the story that his grandson Jacob was the line from Abraham to which that blessing would be going okay now with that said if you've read any of the stories or know anything about Jacob he certainly doesn't fit the bill really as the kind of person that you would think naturally would be God's kind of chosen person to bring forward his purposes his name Jacob means basically deceiver okay just thinking for some of you, I'm not sure if Jacob's here today. It um, actually means grasps his heel. That's what it actually means. But for this Jacob, that was seen in that culture as deceiver. Not a good start, I suppose. Um, but it, as, as that was his name, he lived that out. That wasn't just something that he went by. He lived that out in what he did. He basically wheeled his and dealed his way for every situation he could, using any uh, available means to get his own way. And that's simply, uh, that seems to be how he did stuff. And uh, this point in the story is interesting because it's all about to come crashing potentially down on Jacob's head after years of deception. He is standing at this moment with a very real possibility of all of his tricks coming back to get him, basically. And uh, what's happened is he'd gone from his family's home to live with his uncle for a number of years, and had now left his uncle's house with all his, his wives, his children, his possessions, servants, etc, etc, and they were all together in a big caravan entourage sort of thing, and someone is coming to meet them, and that someone is Jacob's brother Esau, okay? Now, Two things I think would have been prominent in Jacob's mind as his brother came to meet him. And I think those would have been these. Firstly, Esau had more reason to hate Jacob than anyone else alive on planet Earth at this time. Okay. Jacob had tricked Esau out of his birthright as firstborn. Esau was born first of the two brothers and he tricked him out of his birthright and he'd actually gone so far as to trick his dad uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing that's meant to be for the firstborn but to Jacob by basically dressing up as Esau and taking the blessing. Okay? In fact, when Jacob last saw Esau, he had to leave the family home because Esau was openly planning to murder him. Okay? So I would have thought that would probably be somewhere bashing around in Jacob's head. Second thing that he knew about Esau was Esau was not alone coming to meet him. He was coming with 400 men. That's all the messenger said. He said, is Esau coming? Yeah, he's got 400 men with him. I mean, it doesn't specify what these men were. Were they kind of a team of performing I don't know <laughs> true but I don't know I would imagine most people would have thought I think we know where this is going this is bad so these two things are in Jacob's mind and at the night before he goes to meet his brother then this is what happens he sends his family and his possessions across the river and then he withdraws from some alone time you might be thinking this might be the last alone time I'm ever going to get um, and then this happens it says Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak okay Right, it's slightly unusual. Um, now, you've got to understand here that in the ancient world, street lighting uh, in the, uh, even the most thriving urban centres, if any centres could be called urban in that sort of day and age, would have been reasonably primitive. Okay? So when you're on a little dusty path outside Canaan by a river, you're just dealing with stars. That's basically it. And uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been out in a place where you're just dealing with stars in the middle of the night. But you can't see a whole lot. It's pretty dark. In fact, it's very dark. I think pitch black would be a reasonable uh, definition uh, of what was likely to be going on. And so you've got to see that in this context. Jacob is standing there. He's maybe just pondering. And suddenly, out of the darkness, completely unannounced, someone, a man, suddenly attacks him out of the blue, or out of the black, I suppose, uh, in this case. And uh, a man is pretty much a good description because he wouldn't have done anything else. That's just it. Someone, for some reason, has attacked him. So what happens next? Verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him. Okay, just hold there for a second. We've got to assume something here that is a given. Jacob joins in. You get that? The guy attacks him. Jacob joins in. Now, I like to be honest in, in my preaches. I want to be very clear. If this happened to me, I would take a very different tack uh, to do what Jacob did. Someone attacks me out in any situation, anywhere, I would not be joining in. that instantly, we're back away. Okay, what do you want? You take my money, take my keys. I don't care. Just don't hurt me, please. Don't, don't touch my hair as well. That's important to me. Okay, so, but whatever, I, I'm not going to be joining in, but Jacob chooses a different strategy. He locks kind of, arms with this guy and he gives as good as he gets and it's clear that actually this guy can't beat him this guy's jacob's not going down he's not going to give up now some of you right now you might be thinking oh sounds a little bit reckless it's almost like jacob's relishing this kind of armed combat this isn't exactly turn the other cheek is it but at this point we've got to keep doing this in this story just remember where we're going to be going because jacob is praised for this action here He's fighting a man with his bare hands. He's praised later on. God blesses him for, for this. And there's something in here that we've got to emulate, okay? Now, at this point, I think this is something that needs to be pretty early in this message. Uh, I guess you might have spotted the, uh, the title and uh, seen the picture of some wrestlers and stuff like that. I need to make this point very clearly. We are going to learn from Jacob and we're going to learn from Jacob basically fighting with somebody. But we're not going to learn. There's going to be no measure of the application that's, yeah, so let's go get ready to rumble. Like That's not going to be the application. Violence is no laughing matter. Okay, A, a brutal punch-up does make good telly if you're of a certain bent I suppose um, but anyone who's been on the receiving end of violence or has lived amongst violence knows that violence is actually no joke at all and that uh, Jesus made it very very clear that we are not to be physically violent we're not to push that, our, our goals forward through physical violence even we're really not meant to defend ourselves through physical violence he couldn't have been clearer really and uh, the early Christians were universally pacifists it would seem in all matters Okay? Now, whether you think there are exceptions to that rule in certain situations, well, it's up to you and your conscience from looking at God's Word, and we're not going to delve into that today. I'm not going to tell you where I stand on that. It's, it's a different matter altogether. But I think we could probably all agree, if we've got respect for what the Bible teaches, that Christians should never be quick to strike physically another person. Okay? So there's no sense that we're reveling in physical violence. So if you've got that logged, log that away. That's important. You, we might return to that as we go along. But, on the other hand, I don't know if you've noticed this, we've got an interesting dilemma as Christians. You've got Jesus' words of peace, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, etc., ringing in your ear, and then you go to our holy book, the Bible, and you notice something slightly odd. The majority of heroes in the Bible are fighters. Do you ever spot that? It's like very hard to ignore. They're, they're, they're fighters, they're warriors, both men and women. So think for a moment... Uh, of today's modern stereotype of a Christian. Okay? I know it might be different, different things, but if someone say, like, basically, what do most people think Christians are like? What, what pen portrait would they draw? I guess we'd draw something like uh, someone very gentle, uh, something humble, deferential, and probably a little bit weedy. But would you say that's probably what people think, isn't it, of Christians? Now, map that for a moment then onto Moses, or Gideon, David, Samson, and uh, just so the ladies don't f- miss out on here, Deborah, who led the armies of God, and Jael. Have you ever come across Jael in the Old Testament? Uh, Jael has a few nods. People are like, yeah, we love her. Jael is famous for one thing. She drove a tent peg through the head of a man. That's what she did. Wow, well done, Jael. And you're like, reading it like, what? Not well done, Jael. But no, no, these are the, the models of faith for us. Obviously, there are questions we ask about this stuff. And it's important to ask questions. We think, well, look, how do these things match up? And we've got to ask those questions. And uh, we'd love to do that in all sorts of contexts at the church. But I think at the moment, let's just make sure we don't jump to the questions. Because what we can do when we ask questions of the Bible is we can ask so many questions, we actually then wash away any meaning or application from that truth in the Bible. That's not a good way to approach Scripture. God presented it like this. And we've got to understand why. Let's face it. God could have chosen to reveal his model servants as bank clerks. He could have done, or vets. I mean, it would have been absolutely possible for him to do that, but he doesn't. On the whole, they are fighters. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm not nothing against bank clerks or vets, you know. Like, I'm sure, anyway, um, When I see that, what I see is this. There is an attitude and an approach to life that is modeled by a fighter that we need to take very, very seriously in living out our faith today. And that's especially true when we realize that life is a battle. So when we go into the New Testament, um, maybe you don't get so many uh, soldiers as heroes in the New Testament. Okay, There's a few. But what you do get is you get the context of life mapped out in exactly the same way. So Paul says, he, t- he tells the Ephesian church, life's a struggle, what should you do then? Put on the armor of God. He takes the same imagery, he says it's a battle, it's a fight. There's a fighting mentality meant here. He tells Timothy, a young leader in the church, he wants to encourage him to serve Jesus fully. What analogy does he use? Fight the good fight of faith. Even Jesus. Jesus said on one occasion that it's forceful, or even you could translate that word violent people, who ultimately are the ones who press into the kingdom and take hold of it. These words came from Jesus. The Bible is not a story of two halves. It's not like, in the old days, God thought, plan A, let's take the world by force, get it over and done with. A few centuries go by, and he realises that's not really working, so it kind of rebrands and goes all John Lennon on us. That's not the Bible, okay? Some people always get into that thing. That's not how the Bible works. No. From cover to cover, we are encouraged that to follow God means to fight. Now in our day and age, that's not physically with our fists, but to have the mentality and grit of a fighter. And if you want to ask how that looks, well, let's go back to our story and we can start to see that. But watch out because things are about to get (laughs) slightly odd in this story if they've not got odd already, okay? Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, this is what he did, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he rested with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. Now, here we get the first sense that this is not just some guy who's had a few too many stellars and wants a rumble, okay? Something odd going on here. This guy just touches Jacob's hip and suddenly it's dislocated. It's like he can put his hand right into the inner workings of his body. It's a little bit odd. We're kind of getting a clue. This, there's some supernatural power at work here. Can we say any more than that? Well, as it goes on, he also seems to have a thing about sunlight going on in verse 26. Let me go for his daybreak. I did explore an angle here that possibly this is a vampire, but uh, apparently that didn't go very far. And so I just to let you into the preacher's mind anyway. Um, but actually, when we think about this, or one preacher's mind, um, <laughs> Andy, help me with that one. I had to put him right. Um, the reference to daybreak, though, I think is helpful to us, and I think we can see why. Why this is? What this means is surely what the what the fight is saying is: I don't want you to see who I am. I don't want to let you see actually very importantly i don't want you to see my face jacob knows who this is definitely by the end of the story he says i have uh, seen god face to face and been spared he identifies this fighter not just as some supernatural power later on in the bible they talk about an angel wrestled with jacob but it's very clear that within whether this is an angel or however this is represented there is a very real sense in which god is fighting with jacob and jacob is fighting with god it says in the Old Testament that you cannot see the face of God and live. And so although Jacob fought with God face to face, he never saw his face. And that's the reference. It's a big clue to us. He's plot twist alert. He's fighting God. The question must be asked, at what point does Jacob realize this? And I'd argue at this point there must be a hint. He must at least have an inkling. I think we see that from those two things that have happened, but also from what he says next. This is what Jacob says. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Well, just think about this for a minute. This is Jacob being completely true to type, just so you know. He's always chasing blessing all the way through his life. Through fair means or foul, he's after the blessing of people. But actually, for Jacob, he understood that behind the blessing of people was another blessing that he saw and craved even more. And he always did this. And it was the blessing of God. So when he's blessed by his dad, he uses such deception to get this blessing from his father... He got the blessing of a man, but actually, really, he got the blessing of God. Might sound like a funny way to bless your son, but this is what Isaac says to Jacob when he blesses him Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. It's like the unusual terminology, but where's the blessing coming? It's the Lord. And then he says, May God give you. And then he lists on the blessings. Now, Jacob. Work for the blessing of men, but he understood something. Behind that blessing lay the blessing of God. And Jacob, by asking for blessing here, seems to be saying, wait a minute, I think I know this is. This is the one whose blessing I've been after all the time. It's God. But this is an incredible thing. As Jacob at least gets this inkling in his mind, a thought... I could be wrestling with God himself here. He doesn't jump back and go, ah, what a blunder. What have I done? I'm so sorry. God, are you okay? But he doesn't do that. He goes on fighting. You know, it's like He keeps fighting. He knowingly wrestles with God. I think we should really, at this point, we should kind of stand back and go, wait a minute. There should be questions in our mind at that point. Surely we shouldn't fight God, should we? But what we know this is heading. Even with that said, even now we know who he's fighting. As much as he's fighting, he's fighting God. He gets blessed. God thinks this is good. So what is it about Jacob's fighting God that was, uh, was praiseworthy? How can we emulate what he did today to be fighters in a right way? Even in some cases fighting as if with God. Well, the first thing I think we see and it's vital is we need to be people who will fight like Jacob for the blessing of God. We need to fight for the blessing of God. For all Jacob's deception and trickery up to this point, there is something incredibly admirable about this character. It's amazing when we look at characters in the Bible and we, we jump on their floors quite quickly, and say, well, he did this and he did this. God always looks at things differently and he picks things and we think, well, that doesn't matter, does it? He says, no, that's the thing. That's the thing in this person that I'm going to use to be a blessing. And I think this is the thing for Jacob. He, he fights for God's blessing. He values the blessing of God. And the whole episode with his father chasing after this blessing it was an incredible risk. If Isaac had seen through his pretty shoddy disguise, if you know the story, he wouldn't have got a blessing. He would have got a curse. He would have been kicked out. He would have been in real trouble. Now, he didn't get anything tangible from his father on that occasion. Why take that risk? We well, went to that trouble because he valued the blessing. And again, he goes even further. He realizes, I'm sure, that he's fighting with one, not just who could dislocate his hip with a touch, but who made the whole world with a word. And he takes the ultimate risk. He goes on fighting. Why? Because he's desperate for the blessing of God. In his context, you can probably see why. He's about to face Esau. He knows it's only God's blessing that can get him through that encounter if Esau is hostile to him, as he thinks. He knows for his family. He wants God to protect and secure his family line. And it's only God who can do that in a dog-eat-dog world like they lived in in those days. And so he did the most crazy thing imaginable. He continued fighting with God. You know what? We are in exactly the same position today. Every one of us seated here needs one thing more than anything else. It's the blessing of God. There's no financial backer who could supply your needs better. There's no ruler or celebrity who could open more doors for you. There's no friend or family member or lover who could meet your personal needs more thoroughly. I and you are in desperate need every moment of our lives of God's blessing. If God stands against us, we fail. If God is for us, we succeed. And if either of those two things are true, there are no other parts to that equation that actually even matter. I want you to think about it. Do you consider these things? Are they at the forefront of your minds when you, when you wake up in the morning as you go about your day? I want to press this one home because I think this is a vital thing that we understand Throughout the Bible, this kind of thing is mentioned. I just want to go a couple of places. Proverbs 21 31 says this The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. You might think, wow, well, you need strength, you need power to get ahead in life. Military strength, that's what the horse represents here. No, no, you don't. If God's on your side, everything else doesn't matter. Victory rests with the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 1, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. No, it's about getting the ear of that person. Oh, we could never do this because those people with power are set against us. No, no. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water. No, I want him to think this. I can do that. Romans 8, 31, Paul puts it like this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Thanks for asking, Paul. Well, they could be against us. They could be against us. No, he doesn't mean that. This is a rhetorical question. If God is for us, nobody can be against us. Or in a significant way, that matters. I want to address you if you're not a Christian here on this one. It could be that you don't believe in God at all. And in that case, I'd love to have a discussion with you, but probably a slightly different discussion. But there might well be some who aren't a Christian, but you would take the view that many take that there probably is a God, but you adopt a sort of live and let live approach to God. You don't bother me. I won't bother you. I'm sure that'll work and that'll be fine. If that's you here, I want to make a challenge to you. I, I don't think that your way of life is consistent. I don't. I'm so sorry about that, but I don't. I'll explain what I mean. If God exists, his blessing is everything. If there is a God, one well, who made all of this, surely the even if that's even likely to be true, surely it would make massive sense to chase after finding out how you could receive the blessing of such an individual. I don't think that's an extreme suggestion. I think, on the other hand, say, well, there probably is a God whose blessing is obviously everything, but you know what? I'm not even going to bother researching that. I'm just going to go off and do this and this. I think I want to challenge you in that. Now, the Bible actually gives answers to the question of how to get God's blessing. It gives a picture of this whole thing, which at first looks very unpromising to us. The Bible uh, says to us uh, that actually on our own, for any of us, it's impossible for us to gain the blessing of God through our actions, do anything we can do. Well, At least in a significant and ultimately meaningful way, I mean. Because the reason for this is actually, according to the Bible, we are under God's punishment. Heavy idea, but that's what the Bible says. And what it says is that through the things that we've done, And through the self-sufficient lives that we've lived, ignoring the one who made us, actually we've corrupted ourselves to such an extent that God has turned against us naturally as human beings. It's not God being mean. It's the just judge of all things, bringing the just judgment on those who've become utterly against him and living lives that aren't right. But the amazing news of Christianity is while we couldn't get ourselves out of this mess... There was one who did. Jesus died to pay our punishment. The penalty we all deserved that we'd earned was paid by another. And in, uh, on the cross an exchange took place because the blessing of God which Jesus earned through a completely faithful obedient life then is exchanged with us. We, Jesus takes our penalty, we take what? The blessing of God that he earned. The only one who could earn it. And all we need to do is to agree to build our lives on the foundation of trust in Jesus, and it's ours. We can get the blessing of God through him. But just to say one last thing to you, again, if you're, if you're in the camp that I've, I've mentioned, although this is a free gift in some ways, there will still be fighting for you to do to enter into the kingdom, to accept Jesus. To accept this free gift of Jesus, you'll need to fight against your pride. You'll need to admit I cannot do it on my own. I can't earn the blessing of God on my own. That's a fight. You need to fight maybe against your dreams. When you come to Jesus, Jesus says, well, it's my way now. Might be in line with some of the things you want to do. Might not be. It's a fight. Are you willing for that fight? You have to fight against your control and autonomy. Because following Jesus means putting him on the throne of your life. He is the final say for me now. Anyone who becomes a Christian walks away from that encounter with Jesus with a limp, just like Jacob did. Very few people are going to say to you, well done, you look so much more impressive now you've become a Christian. No, we're humbled when we come to Jesus. We walk with a limp. But you know what else we walk away with? We walk away with the blessing of God. The most valuable thing there could be in all of eternity. If if you've not thought about that before, if you've not accepted that, please talk to some of us before the end of today. We want to talk to you about it. Turn attention to Christians now who are here, you might conclude then, well yeah I've done all that, I've got the blessing of God in that sense already Johnny, so there's no fight left for me is there? Actually there is a fight left for us. Let's just be sure, as Christians as I've just said, we know the reality that God is for us. As individuals he's for us, like a loving parent is for their child. God is for us. That was earned by Jesus. We cannot increase God's favour on us. We cannot lessen God's favour on us through our actions. It was done by Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. That's crucial. But actually, how we receive that favour into specific situations of blessing that we need, well, that's a different matter. Think about, again, a a family and and kids. A kid in a loving family, the parent's favour would always be on the child. But that doesn't mean that the child will get everything they want at everything, every moment, does it? No, there would be another level. You want specific blessing from the one who favors you in a specific situation. For each of us here, and as I'm just saying, it would be good to reflect on what some of these things are. God has given all of us passions. I hope He has anyway, passions and dreams. He's given us concerns that are specific to us. He's given us specific areas of responsibility. He's given us people who are dear to us. He's given us our own lives, our own health, our own bodies. I'm sure we're concerned about those things. Now, obviously, you can care too much about the things you care for, can't you? Your concerns are not the, the most important concerns in the whole world. They're not the only concerns, No, uh, we need to be aware and mindful of things that happen outside of our own sphere of influence. We need empathy for others' and others' concerns. And that's all true, but that does not mean that we should neglect the things that we feel strong about. God wants the things that matter to you to matter to you. He wants the things that matter to you to matter to you. Christianity is not a denial of the self. We don't want to get to this, a place and the Bible doesn't paint this where ultimately we'll be in some big blob of consciousness and all and we'll have objective knowledge of everything and no personal individual perspective. That's not Christianity, that's another religion, that's called Buddhism. Okay, it's just different, it's a different thing. Some people read, Oh, I, I couldn't pray that for me because it's kind of selfish. No, no, God made you how you are. You experience life from one person's perspective, yours, you feel physical pain. When one person's body is affected, yours. God, that's how it was before the fall. That's how it will be forever and ever. Now, we can get carried away and selfish and forget everyone else, but we shouldn't ever think, oh, I can never pray for this on my heart, but it's so silly. No, no, no. We should bring these things to God. And if we feel strongly about something and want a situation to change, it shouldn't be enough for us just to say, yeah, but God's kind of on my side and I'm sure he'll work things through. God does not a holy attitude now that's not what we should do we're to lay hold of him for his specific blessing and he gives us a way in which we can get his specific blessing in individual situations and it's by doing exactly what Jacob does in this story it's by asking God for his blessing you wonder where you're going to link into the sermon series didn't it's by praying that's what, what it is And in this story, we see then a picture of how we need to go about praying on occasions. I want to be clear on this, because as we do a whole series on prayer, this is important to say. This isn't the only way to pray, like to always wrestle with this sort of mentality. There are other prayers in the Bible that are much more start off. No, it's restful prayer. That's important. So this isn't the only way to pray, but I tell you what, this is something you need to have in your arsenal as a prayer. I'll argue that in a minute, but this is something we need to learn. We need to learn to be able to pray, God, I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't give up. I'm going to keep going. I'll make it an inconvenience to put requests before you. I'm going to give it time. I'm going to give it energy. I'm going to pray as if I'm trying to change your sovereign will and divert what you want to happen. I'm going to fight. Do you know how it is to pray like that? Have you ever prayed like that? Do you know times... When you've been praying and you're afraid halfway through that maybe you're being too forward with God. You ever had times like that? You ever finished praying and thought to yourself, oh dear, I may have overstepped the line slightly there. Was I a little bit forceful or aggressive possibly there? Ever overstepped the line? Tell you what, Jacob, the line's way back for Jacob. He's well past the line. He's as over the line as you could possibly get. It is possible in this story, Jacob punches God in the face. Seriously. He wrestles with him. We shouldn't, we shouldn't over-spiritualize or romanticize with that. The line is way back. He's gone. So then, wh- how come verse 29's here and it says this, then God blessed him there. So, no, we, we approach God with reverence and awe, don't we? Yeah, we definitely approach God with reverence and awe. But what could be more reverent than desiring his blessing so much that we would fight for it? If we aren't prepared to fight for his blessing, let's put it like this. What does that say about how we value our God and the things he gives us? You might be able to say all the right words. You might even be able to put on that lovely humble tone. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You might be able to do all of that stuff. But actually, if your approach to prayer is casual and sporadic... What you are essentially saying is, I can get the blessings on my own. I don't need your blessing, God. I don't really value your intervention in my life. It's just not important to me. Do you know what's more irreverent than potentially punching God in the face? Is refusing to fight for His blessing. That's what we see here. So we pray to God to get God's blessing. And we get God's blessing so often by showing him we value his blessing and we show we value God's blessing by praying like fighters. Now obviously we could overstep the line. I don't want you to to hear what I'm not saying. And sometimes we just have to say sorry. I've had to say sorry to God. for God, you know what? That was wrong of me to do that. And God forgives on those occasions. But according to the story of Jacob, I prefer to be there than passively sitting back and just letting life wash over me. It's not what we're meant to be as Christians. There's another reason, though, that we should pray like this. And as we draw to a close, I want to give this as a kind of a balance, I suppose. But it's kind of also a, a reason to pray even more forcefully as well. I'll see what you make of this. Let's see what happens next. Look, look how God responds to Jacob's request. Jacob says, bless me, okay? 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Verse 28, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. God calls us to fight for his blessing, firstly to receive his blessing, secondly to show we value his blessing, but also because as we fight, it is in the fight that we are changed. Just think about the order of this passage and how things happen in this passage, how Jacob is affected here. He comes to God, as we've seen, to enlist God's support, Okay, to to get God to help him, to get God to give him his blessing. Jacob wants God's blessing in his immediate situation. Save from Esau, also bigger picture for his kids, his family, all of that sort of stuff. And he wants God to support his agenda. And as I've said, that is fine to come to God with that sort of mentality. But look at how it ends. He comes to God to support his agenda. Jacob ends completely swept up into God's agenda. What's the change that happens? Well, first thing is, God renames Jacob. He gives him a new name. Now in ancient cultures, naming someone or renaming them is a sign of authority. Remember Jesus who said to, to, to Simon Peter, He said, Your name's now Peter. What he was doing was he was taking authority over Peter. By naming someone, if you accept the name someone gives you, you're saying, Okay, I give you authority over me. That's what happens here. But look at what his new name is. The new name is Israel. Now, Israel's fitting here because Israel means struggle or fight, or more literally, God fights. And hasn't Jacob learned that one uh, out pretty well here? But actually, as you will all know, Israel, you'd know that word more generally. As we all know here, Israel is now a nation state uh, in the world, what, thousands of years after this story. Actually, even more than that, as we read the Bible, we see that Israel... Uh, was and is a nation that was chosen in a special way to further God's rescue plan on planet Earth. Israel was very, very key to God's whole purposes in humanity. Jacob, when he came to f- into this situation, had an agenda and a plan. On the other side, God had an agenda and a plan. God wanted and still wants to save humanity from their sin and win their hearts back to him. And he told Abraham years before how, he, how he'd do it, through his family. And actually, he told Jacob this is how he'd do it too, through his family. And when this fight ends then, Jacob's very name, now Israel, shows that he has now been utterly enveloped in the purposes and agenda of God. Do you see? Jacob comes to God asking, further my little plans. And he ends up taking his place in God's Almighty's massive plans. That's important. That's really vital. We see it as an element of prayer. We come to prayer naturally. It might sound odd to put it like this. But this is how we come. God, may my will be done. Please help me to achieve my will. And that might seem very stark and very kind of unspiritual to you. But I think that's where all requests start. Moses, the great Moses, he's got one psalm in the Bible where it ends with a repeated line and Moses prays, establish the works of my hands. Think how selfish that seems. Establish the work of my hands. Support the things I'm doing. Now God says, that's okay. That's, he's given us that responsibility. We're to bring God the things we feel strongly about. We pray my will be done and, and God may grant those requests. Notice he does to Jacob. But he doesn't, necessarily there's no guarantee here think of Abraham last week if you were here Abraham was a fighter Abraham wrestled in prayer with God for the city of Sodom did he get what he asked for well Lot his nephew got saved but the city went down now we're not guaranteed to get the exact thing we asked for we go into the fight knowing that but I think there is a guaranteed outcome if we learn to wrestle with God in prayer the gar- what God wrestlers always get is a complete change of agenda so that we come to God saying my will be done and we end saying your will be done. might relate to a story I think in the Bible that's almost identical to this story just in a very different context because someone else came before God in a very very similar way as this one. It was in a garden and for him he fought with his father And he fought for hours. He fought so hard, he didn't just get a dislocated hip. He started sweating blood. That was the intensity of the fight. When Jesus prayed just before the cross in Gethsemane, he was seeking to wrestle God's blessing off him. He was seeking to wrestle God's rescue and God's protection. Don't send me to the cross. Is there any other way? Father, could you take this cup from me? wrestled and where did it end but not my will but your will be done do you want your little purposes to be wrapped up in the eternal purposes of God do you want for your life to be directed not just according to your whims or where you were born or the things you're into or the cultural pressures but what you do then is you come and you lay those things before God, not like they don't matter, but like they do matter, and you learn to fight in prayer. And you know what? God has a real habit of turning that right round and just enveloping you in his purposes. It's the best blessing we could get from God. It's the best blessing Jacob gets here. And we need to be a people who know that dynamic. So let's finish then, and let's ask as we finish the question everyone asks in a fight. Who won? Let's have a show of hands. Who, do you think, who thinks, uh, just think about it for a second. Who thinks Jacob won? You're the judge. Okay, I think Jacob won. A few of you. Okay, no, I'd, I'd, I'd want to just put a few things to the others then. Uh, Julie's verse 28 kind of, kind of pushes in that direction, doesn't it? Verse 28, God says, you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Looks like we've got some gold stars to hand out here, doesn't it? <laughs> Jacob gets the blessing. Next chapter esau totally unexpectedly greets jacob all hostility gone his kids become the 12 tribes of israel remembered throughout history he gets the blessing so you could say yeah it looks like win for jacob in the blue corner but just to think of something for a second i'm going to take those gold stars off for a moment actually no gold stars Can't go to those sort of lengths of expense at this church i'm afraid um Imagine the conversation the next morning. Uh, he, he kind of his family are there, like uh, waking up, bleary-eyed wives, kids. They see Jacob stumbling over the hill towards them. Like, Jacob, where have you been? What's going on? Are we ready? He's like, "You will never believe what's happened. I have had a fight. No, not again. No, no. Listen, I've had a fight. I fought with God." And they're like, "What?" And he goes, "No, no. The best bit's not even yet. I won. I won the fight. I beat God in a fight." And be like, "What?" This is craziness. Okay, Jacob, what are we going to do now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, By the way, just don't call me Jacob anymore. Uh, God's given me a new name. My name's now Israel, okay? So just call me that. Uh, What we're going to do, yeah, that's a good point. Well, what we're going to do is this. I'm giving my entire life now to serve God, and I'm going to take my place in bringing about his eternal purposes. Oh, and by the way, sorry about this. You're going to need to give me a hand because I'm unable to walk properly because God has completely knackered my hip. I would imagine the response may well be, just run that by me again, Jacob. So you won, did you, in that fight? Okay, fair enough. Listen, we serve uh, an awesome God. He's the powerful creator of everything and he will always win the victory in all fights. But he shares the spoils with us. And sometimes, strange as it may seem, he wants us to fight him for them. How will we respond to that invitation?